I think this is the third time I've preached at uh, your church, and in fact, I've preached in different venues each time. It was a primary school and then TA Centre, and uh, it's finding hard to find you guys. Each <laughs> Where are you? But I, yeah, I love this place. I think this is great. I love your heart for this place, and I think it's pretty. It gets my vote of confidence. Uh, and if nothing else, it means I get to go home and change my CV and put guest lecturer at Kingston University. So that's... that's um, it's not quite King's College London, you're right, but it's great nonetheless. Okay, we're going to crack on. Uh, time is money, and today we're talking about the theme of busyness. So I wonder if we can set the scene with a couple of stats with the next slide, please. There we go. Uh, I'm sure we can all agree that's fairly self-explanatory. Next slide. <laughs> uh, that's a joke. Um, uh, in my church, they would have understood that, but... Um, Ooh. <laughs> Actually, it, I just realised it's slightly disconcerting that you can turn these chairs and face the other way. So if I see you protesting, I'm almost tempted to try and get a selfie with all you facing the other way, but let, let's, let's not. Let's crack on. Okay. Um, the average UK worker works 8.7 hours a day. That means if you start work at 8.30am, you will finish at 6.12, assuming you have an hour's lunch break. Your colleagues in Germany and Italy will typically leave the office one hour earlier than you. Your American colleagues will work one hour more than you. In fact, Americans typically work 47-hour weeks. It wasn't too long ago that in America, futurists, which is the most ridiculous name for a job, sorry if there are any futurists here, but you don't have a real job. Uh, futurists were saying that in the future generations, one of the biggest problems people would have is too much free time on our hands. So in 1967, testimony before a US sub Senate subcommittee said that by the year 1985, the average American working um, day would be 22 no, sorry, <laughs> working day, working week would be 22 hours long. They could not have been more wrong. In 1967, the annual working hours of an average American worker were 1,716. By the year 2000, that had gone up to 1,878, an increase of 162 hours a year. Incidentally, if you want an easy ride, your best bet is to move to Norway, where they work on average 14 weeks fewer per year than the average American worker. That is incredible, right? And actually, just to be clear, these stats really only uh, deal with, well, they deal with the hours that we actually work, but contracted working hours have not actually increased over the last 50 years. They've stayed about the same. What has changed is our ability to work beyond our contracted working hours. Next slide. 60% of people say that they read their emails on holiday or at work. Uh, that was something that obviously wasn't very possible until fairly recently. Now we have internet in our homes, and of course we have smart smartphones and tablets, and we can get the internet anywhere. We can read our emails anywhere. In fact, actually, the ability to work late into the night is a fairly recent thing as well. It wasn't until the early 1900s that houses had electricity and therefore lighting, and therefore people could work every hour God gave them. It's a fairly new thing. Some of you you guys may remember that. That's uh, a joke. I'm not winning you over to my side today. Am I? You're slowly rotating. Um, parents, parents who work. Uh, I mean, technology is great. I'm pro-technology. I love technology. But actually, it has knock-on effects on the way we work. And parents of small children uh, say that they, on average, spend twice as long checking emails than they do playing with their kids. These things have an effect on the way we live, the way we do family. Uh, let's think a little bit about time off. In the UK, we have on average 28 days off a year, including bank holidays. In Germany, that number is 41. In Italy, 44. In Spain, 46. In France, 47. If you've ever wondered why the Brits typically don't like the French, um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's why, but it doesn't help. Um, fewer than, oh, in fact, 
around 50% of us, I think it's fair to say, don't take our full holiday entitlement each year. The average lunch break is 27 minutes long. The average lunch hour <laughs> is 27 minutes long. And in fact, UK workers, in terms of the unpaid overtime they do each year, they typically will do eight weeks' worth of unpaid overtime, which, to put it in perspective, is the equivalent of working January and February for no pay whatsoever, <laughs> which does not sound great to me. Think about travel. I don't know how many of you guys commute to work. The average commute in the UK is 38 minutes long. A study last year showed that the average London commute daily is now 73 minutes. In fact, one study that I read suggested that the stress that commuters experience is the same stress that fighter pilots and riot police <laughs> experience in their job. <laughs> so actually, if you commute to work as a fighter pilot or a riot policeman, you must have nerves of steel. I salute you. It's absolutely incredible. It is no, therefore no wonder that the fast-paced nature of our lives is having an effect on our stress levels and our health. Next slide. Over 8 out of 10 British workers feel their quality of life has been harmed by work demands. 1 out of 5 men have visited the doctor with work-related stress. 60% of people say that their workload is sometimes out of control. 1 in 5 of us feel this way most of the time. The need for sleep differs from person to person according to a whole load of factors. It can range from 6 to 10 hours, but the average an adult requires is still actually 8 hours a night. The average that people get is 7, point, uh, seven hours and 4 minutes, which is actually 2 hours down on the 1910 average. Three quarters of us go to work when ill, although a 10-year study at, K at um, UCL shows that workers who don't take time off when ill actually double the chances or the risk of heart disease in the long term. I think you can spot our shifting attitudes towards health and rest in the way that people now advertise health products. I don't know if you've noticed this. It wasn't too long ago that people would have you know, uh, adverts of people just wrapped up in bed drinking a cup of whatever the miracle drug was, and, and, and the kind of underlying message would be, if you're feeling ill, just rest a little bit, drink our product, you'll be back on your feet in no time. Now you don't see those adverts anymore. Now it's a case of someone completely high on whatever the medicine is, storming into work and working through anyway. And the underlying message is, don't stop, you cannot stop. We live in a busy world, and so our drug will get you through. You don't need to rest. I think, how on earth have we got to this Point, 72% of managers are criticised by friends and family for spending too much time working. The number of people who say they always feel rushed has jumped 50% between the 60s and the 90s. In fact, when I was re uh, researching for this talk, I even read an, a story about a lady who had moved to the US from a different nation, was trying to get to grips with the language and culture, didn't understand it, starting from scratch, and she began introducing herself to people as busy because the first thing she heard when she met people was, hi, I'm busy, and she assumed it was a cultural greeting. <laughs> we live in a busy time. We live in a busy city, in a busy nation, in a busy continent, at a point in time where people consider busy to be a virtue. And I think if we're honest, many of us, hearing stats like that and reflecting on our own lives, would think, you know what, at times I feel stretched. At times, I feel like I know deep down my life is unsustainable if I carry on at this pace. And yet, few of us ever have time. We hardly ever allow ourselves the time to think, is this actually the way it was meant to be? And is it possible that there might be another way? 
What I want to do this morning is think just a little bit about what the Bible might teach about the subject of busyness and how we can simplify our our diaries, our lifestyle, and figure out how life is meant to be. Of course, just one other thing. This list that I have given you, I could have carried on for about, well, my entire time, but that wouldn't have been fun for anyone. This only deals with work commitments. I mean, add other stuff into the mix, like just general life admin and chores and uh, raising family and all the stuff that comes with that, whether it's school runs or feeding the kids or being woken up in the night or uh, think about church commitments or leisure or community work. You add these things in, no wonder many of us feel busy. What does the Bible have to say about this? Well, if you have a Bible, you may want to turn to Mark chapter one. uh, And while you're turning there, just two qualifications from me. Uh, Sometimes as a preacher, you get to preach on a subject that you're like, I've got this down. I'm I'm an expert on this. I know what I'm talking about. And sometimes the kind of sermons you deliver are more ones where you know I'm teaching you, but I'm really teaching myself at the same time. And this is one of those sermons. This really is. In fact, I've now taught this sermon three times, and I've been preaching it to myself three times, and I still need to hear it a fourth. This is something, I'm I'm a work in progress in this area. But a few books that have really helped me and challenged me over the last uh, year or so are... As follows, Simplify by Bill Hybels, a great book on how to simplify every area of our life, our relationships, our time, our finance, uh, all sorts of things. Incredibly helpful, uh, very practical book. Uh, The Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness by Tim Chester, despite having the juxtaposition of the worst title and worst cover in all of Christendom, is actually a fairly decent book. Um, It's got some very practical stuff in it. I would check it out. But the third book, uh, Crazy Busy by a guy called Kevin DeYoung, is just so helpful, and I will refer to it at various points during this talk. And if you feel like I'm too busy to read a book, you're not too busy to read this one, because it is minuscule, uh, despite being huge on that screen. Uh, It's really brilliant. Do check it out. But let's read Mark chapter 1, which is one of the passages of the Bible I didn't write, um, but we'll start at verse 29. (laughs) As soon as Jesus and the disciples left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now this passage comes really early on in the the ministry of Jesus. He's about 30 years old. Life is ramping up for him. And I want to look at how Jesus handled busyness in this passage. He had a lot going on. He was a busy chap. Actually, we see this in Mark's gospel more than in any of the others. Mark's gospel is one of the most frantic, fast-paced gospels. If you read it through, you'll find it's just breathless. In fact, despite being the shortest of all the gospels, Mark uses the word immediately 42 times, compared to seven in Luke and four in John. It's like you read it and Jesus, immediately he did this. He did this and then immediately he did this. He went to this place. He finished there and immediately he was somewhere else. And you read it and you're like, man, Jesus was a busy guy. You see it in this passage, immediately doing thing after thing after thing. In this story, we're told it was evening after sunset when the people brought the sick to Jesus. Now, you've got to remember, this was at a time when there were no electric lights. So evening after sunset was 
dark. People typically would have gone to sleep a lot earlier than we do today because they couldn't have stayed up and done anything. It was night time. So at evening after sunset, when the people come to find Jesus, this was not Jesus you know, binging on Netflix, chilling out on the sofa time. This was time when Jesus probably would have been asleep. And the whole town gathers at his door and wakes him up. The whole town gathered at the door. It wasn't even Jesus' door at this point. Jesus is temporarily living at the house of Simon and Andrew where he just healed Simon's mother-in-law. So just imagine that scene for a moment. Jesus is staying over in someone else's house and then the entire town finds his temporary lodging, wakes up Jesus and probably everyone else and a lady who's just been healed from sickness wakes them all up and says, please come and heal all our sick people. I don't know what you would do in that situation. I'm not great in the mornings at the best of times, particularly when I've been woken up against my will. But here, Jesus gets up and like bed hair and all, he goes down and he heals many, many people. My first observation from this is that I think it is okay to be busy. I think busyness can be okay. Jesus was busy. Maybe that's not what you expected to hear in a talk like this, and maybe some of you were just getting ready to chill out and thinking, yes, come on, the preacher's going to say I never have to work again. No, I think busyness is okay. Jesus was busy, and the Bible is actually pro-work. And many of the ancient cultures at this time were very negative about work. The Greeks, they thought of work as a curse, not a blessing. The Bible says that we were made to work. Proverbs is full of things talking about the need for us to work hard. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, referring to the other apostles, I worked harder than any of them. So the Bible is pro-work and pro-hard work. I don't have an issue with working hard. And I think there are times where we just have to put in extra hours. And depending on what your job is like, there will be times where you have to answer emails out of the office. There are times where you have to um, be contactable outside office hours. You have to do extra things. That's just a fact of life. Jesus got up in the middle of the night and healed people. So busyness can be okay, but the difference is you don't get the impression when you look at Jesus that he was mastered by busyness. He was happy to be busy at times, but it's not like it controlled him in a way that it can do for many of us. I think there is something fundamentally at the root of busyness that many of us get trapped by and Jesus resisted. Something that enabled him to say one moment, yes, I'm going to get up and work extra hours, and then the next day to say, no, I'm going somewhere else. What is at the root of busyness? And how could Jesus manage his busyness such that he didn't get mastered by it? And I don't think, incidentally, that the answer is simply that Jesus didn't live in London and Jesus didn't have an iPhone. I think it's deeper than that. There is a root of busyness that we need to identify. What is it? There is a, an article in the New York Times that was doing the rounds a couple of years ago. I remember exactly where I was the first time I read it. It just, like, oh, it got me <laughs> in so many ways. It was called The Busy Trap. It's worth checking out. I don't agree with it all, but, but, but listen to this quote. The author says, You've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing. Busy, so busy, crazy busy. It is pretty obviously, the author says, a boast disguised as a complaint. And the stock response is a kind of congratulation. That's a good problem to have, or better than the opposite. You recognize that at all. He continues, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked in demand every hour of the day. Ouch. 
I think he's right. I think for many of us, busyness is a boast disguised as a complaint. It is an existential reassurance. It's a hedge against emptiness. I think one of the reasons we allow ourselves to get busy is because it makes us feel good. I get this all the time. I'm just, I realized a while back, people ask me how I'm doing, and I do exactly what that article says. People say, oh, how are you doing? I go, yeah, yeah, fine, fine, yeah, busy, lots going on, but you know, I'm fine. <laughs> I do it all the, I've got it down pat, even the pauses and the mumbles, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. I do it all the time, yeah, I'm busy. But, and, and I don't know why I do, do it. I mean, at some level, I think it's partly true. I do feel busy a lot of the time. I do feel like I've got a lot going on, so I'm not lying when I say it, but I'm not sure that's quite why I say it. I think actually there's a part of me that when I go, yeah, I'm fine, yeah, busy, but I'm doing okay. Actually, what I'm after is some kind of respect, maybe, or sympathy, or <laughs> the Holy Grail, people to go, oh, wow, you're incredible. I couldn't do what you do. You're right, you couldn't. <laughs> no, I, I, it makes me feel great when I tell people I'm busy and they give me the sympathy. It builds me up. It's a hedge against emptiness. It's an existential reassurance. My life cannot simply be busy and meaningless if I am so busy all the time. I bet you do it too. I bet many, if you're anything like the people at my church, you probably do it all the time. And in fact, you're going to have very awkward conversations over coffee now because you're going to be like, how are you doing? I'm, oh, Oh, <laughs> in fact, I give you permission. If I tell you later I'm busy, you can punch me as long as I can punch you back. And we're going to have very awkward and, and bruised coffee times, I think. But we all do it. All the, Why do we do it? Why do we do it? I think there's maybe some pride at the bottom of this. Here's, here's a phrase that I find simultaneously encouraging and terrifying. <laughs> uh, in fact, literally, as I was writing this talk, one of my colleagues came over in the office and said this very phrase to me, and I, I just laughed. Uh, I hear it all the time. People come to you and they go, hey, I, I'm so sorry to disturb you. I know you're really busy, but... You know that one? Yeah? I, and I think she meant it encouragingly. <laughs> but when I hear that, it makes me feel two reactions in quick succession. The first is pride. Someone comes over and says, hey, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I know you're really busy, but... And the first thing I think is, yeah, I'm busy, and I'm glad you finally noticed. <laughs> I mean, not that I say that, clearly. That would be very, very weird. But that's kind of what I feel inside. Yeah, I am. I, I, and then the best bit. You know, they say, hey, I know you're busy, but... And then when you actually do the thing they're asking you to do, it's like... Man, this guy's the greatest guy on earth. This busy guy has given me time and it makes me feel incredible. That's my first feeling. It's pride. But my second feeling, it's like a punch to the gut. I just feel guilty. Because what is it that I give off about myself that makes people think that the only way to get me to do something is to flatter me about my busyness? Or do I really give off the impression that I am too busy to care for and help my friends? If so, something is wrong. I think there is pride that is often at the root of my busyness. As the article puts it, busyness is a boast disguised as a complaint. And it may well be a mask that hides the fact that not everything is right underneath. We live at a time and in a place where busy is considered a virtue. I would put it to you that busyness may be rooted in pride. Kevin DeYoung, in his brilliant book, he identifies what he calls the killer peas, uh, which, to be clear, are letters, words beginning with P, not like <laughs> murderous vegetables. That would be... Um, I've got a great idea for a film. But here they are, the killer peas by Kevin DeYoung. He talks about these things, all of which are, in some sense, a manifestation of pride. See if you recognise any of them. Many of us allow ourselves to become busy because of people-pleasing. Double P to kick it off there. Uh, we say yes too much because we don't want to let people down and we want them to think well of us. 
praise. We live for praise and we do things in order to make people think more highly of us. Performance evaluation, just to be clear, I think he's really shoehorned that into the P there. It's not the best term, but a good point nonetheless. We regard ourselves so highly that we overrate our performance and we assume, well, if I don't do this, no one else will be able to do it to my kind of standard. You know what I'm saying? Performance evaluation, possessions. Sometimes we work ourselves into the ground in order to earn more and more rather than working out how I can live a healthy, balanced lifestyle and make cuts elsewhere. Pity. People feel sorry for us when they see that we are busy, and so we rack up busyness to get pity from people. Poor planning, another double P there. Some of us simply don't plan, and so the reason we're busy is because we have been very bad at organizing things. And sometimes that's arrogance at the root of it. We think, I'm above planning, I don't need to plan, and therefore we get into a busy mess. Power. We stay busy so we can stay in control, and maybe the issue here is that we don't actually trust other people to do the work, and so we keep the power for ourselves. Perfectionism. We hold ourselves to too high a standard and can therefore never allow ourselves to rest or prestige. We keep pushing ourselves in order to become someone important for our lives to matter. It is a hedge against emptiness. Do any of those resonate with you? For me, I look at that and it's like, man, a combination, a horrible cocktail of those peas drive a lot of my busyness. I remember this really hit home for me a couple of years ago when I was... uh, I was, I was working at an event outside of London. I had to get up at like stupid o'clock in the morning, a time I didn't even know existed. And I got up and I was on a train out of London uh, earlier than I've ever been awake before in my life probably. And, uh, and I just thought, well, I'm on this train. I've got nothing to do. I'll, I'll just do some emails. So I just started doing some emails, sent off a few emails, uh, thought nothing of it, closed my laptop, probably slept for a bit or whatever. And two emails came back to me over the course of that day that really helped me to understand just how intertwined busyness and pride are in my life. The first one came back within about 30 minutes and it was from a young guy, a kind of trendy guy. I kind of, you know, I knew from afar and he was too cool to be my friend. But, uh, you know, I just I kind of respected this guy and the email just went, wow, check out you, you know, sending emails this time in the morning. Um, no rest for the wicked. And then one of those little wink emoticon kind of things. I tell you, the first thing I felt, I felt pride. Because I thought, hey, here's this guy that I kind of respect from afar. And, and he's like, he's now seen that I work hard and I work early in the morning. And he kind of give, gives me a wink emoticon, which means he respects me, right? <laughs> so I kind of felt, again, I'm not sure I ever expressed this, but I think that's what's going on. I smiled when I got that email. It made me feel good. The second email pricked any of that stupid puffed up pride I felt. I got it around lunchtime. It was from an older pastor, a guy I didn't know very well at all actually, far older, far wiser than me. And he answered my email and then at the end, just a simple line, he said, by the way, I couldn't help but notice the time at which you sent this email. I know it's none of my business, but I just wanted to check. Is everything all right? Take care of yourself, rest well. And that just, it just got me in the heart. I don't know how you would feel about that. Maybe some of you are like, how dare he tell you when you can do your emails? (laughs) But actually, I felt really deeply loved and cared for by that email. Because he was an older, wiser pastor, a guy who was not impressed by busyness, who knew that there was something more important than getting your inbox cleared at 3 a.m. And he took the time to ask me if I was okay. And to be honest, everything was okay, and it really was an exceptional moment. But it stuck with me every time I find myself feeling proud of busyness. I remember that guy's email and the fact that he took a moment to not be impressed. I am not impressed when people tell me they're busy because I don't think God is impressed. Pride is often at the root of our busyness, and it shouldn't be that way. The philosopher Peter Kreeft says this, we want to complexify our lives. We don't have to 
We want to. We want to be harried and hassled and busy. Unconsciously, we want the very things we complain about. For if we had leisure, we would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts and see the great gaping hole in our hearts and be terrified because that hole is so big that nothing but God can fill it. What about you? Do you feel busy? And if you were to take a moment and just think, why am I busy? Why do I allow myself to get this busy? Do you think there's any chance there might be one of those manifestations of pride at the root of it? Do you find it difficult to say no to things or to no to people because you worry what they will think about you, how that will affect you? If so, you may well have a busyness problem. Jesus was busy, but he was not mastered by busyness. He did not give in to the root of busyness. So if that's the root of busyness, pride, then what is the reason that we keep on responding to it? What is the reason we can't break free from busyness? What is the lie that busyness tells us? I think it's this. This is just the way it is, and there's no way out. (laughs) Have you ever found yourself just thinking, I can't say no to this thing or this person, because if I do, they will think badly of me. And if people think badly of me, then that's, that's it. That's game over. I don't want that. I think that's the lie of busyness. This sense that there is no way out. Often busyness itself stops us from seeing the lie at work in our lives. I think Jesus must have faced the same temptations we did. He was tempted in every way. Must include temptation for busyness. And yet, he didn't give in to them. So after a long day of preaching in the synagogue, and preaching's tiring work at times, <laughs> he preaches in the synagogue, he heals the sick, he just wants to sleep, and people rock up and get him to heal the sick. And he does it. But then look at what the next verse says. Verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he gets up and he goes off to be alone. And then his disciples, his closest companions, the guys who know what his life is like, they come and they find him and they exclaim, everyone is looking for you. I mean, what a way to guilt trip the guy. I mean, the disciples, just to be clear, have probably had extra hours in bed while Jesus has been off praying. And then they come up to him and like, Jesus, what are you doing? Everyone is looking for you. And the implicit sort of idea is, come on, you better come down quickly, otherwise you'll let them down. Now, I, part of me would love to hear everyone is looking for me, uh, assuming it was like in a good way, not in a witch hunt kind of way. But you know, everyone is looking for you. It would probably make me think, wow, I'm a big deal around here. I better go down and see my fans. Or it would make me feel like, oh, I don't really want to see them. But if I don't, then I'll let them down. So I, I probably will. Jesus does none of those things. You know what Jesus says? Let's go somewhere else. <laughs> you know, everyone's looking for you. Jesus, you're going to let down an entire town worth of people. Jesus says, let's go somewhere else. Let's go. Let's let's just move on somewhere else. Jesus realized he couldn't do everything. He couldn't do everything. He was just one man, albeit God in flesh. (laughs) But if God in flesh recognized he couldn't do everything, we should recognize we cannot do everything. He says, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there. That is why I have come. Jesus knew that he was not there to achieve everything. Not every need was his problem and he didn't have to respond to every request that came his way. His identity and self-worth did not depend on it. He rejected the lie of busyness. You cannot do everything. I don't know if you've learned that by now. If you haven't, you need to know it. You cannot do everything. You cannot respond to every need, every care, every cause. You cannot care equally about every cause, even very good causes. You cannot alleviate every problem in the world. 
You cannot read every book. You cannot watch every TV show that you absolutely must watch. In fact, now when people say, you absolutely must watch this, I think, I'm not going to watch that just out of stubbornness. You cannot do it all, and if you try, it will kill you. If you feel like you can never say no to anything or anybody, it may well be that you are rooting something of your identity in busyness. Jesus knew the reason that he was here was to take the good news to this village, then this village, then this village, then this village, both in word and deed, so that people would hear the message and experience it through healing. Jesus knew that was what he was about. And so as a result, he knew staying in Capernaum would, would stop, would derail his mission. And so he said, no, the whole village may be looking for me, but I am moving on. Jesus could say no. This is if you take one thing away from my talk, which is always a dangerous thing as a preacher to say, because now you feel like you can shut off for the rest of the talk. But seriously, if you take one thing away, take this away. Jesus could say no to certain things because he had already said yes to something greater. Jesus could say no to certain things because he had already said yes to something greater. He knew what he was about and he was focused rigidly on it. And so he said no to anything that would distract him. What are you made for? What are you made for? What has God created you to do? Unless you know that, you will not be able to decide what things take priority in your life and what things you say no to, and you will be trapped in a cycle of busyness. Now, the answer to that question, what am I to say yes to and what am I to say no to, will be different for every person. And some people just live their life with a sense of, you know, I was made for this one thing. <laughs> I know what this one contribution is that I am meant to make with my life. Some people live like that, and if that's you, that's great. That makes it very easy, because you can focus on that and say no to distractions. Actually, many of us don't live like that. I don't feel like I live like that, and that's okay. And sometimes you hear people who do live like that, and you feel a bit guilty that you don't know your one thing. That's not what I'm saying at all. But you, if you are anything like me, you can set goals for the next six weeks, the next two months, the next term, the next year, the next three years, and say, what do I want to achieve? What do I feel like God is leading to me to achieve over this next season? Or what is the kind of person I need to become over this next season? Where are there weaknesses in my character I need to work on? And therefore, what do I need to say yes to, and what do I need to say no to? Having a clear idea of those things will help you to say yes and say no at the right times. Peter Drucker, who was a, a well-known management consultant, used to say it is not good enough to simply set priorities, things that we will do. We must also set what he called posteriorities. Not just things that come at the top of our to-do list, but things that come at the bottom of our to-do list. I find that really helpful. There are things in my life that when I look at them, I have to identify that is a priority, and that is something that I might dearly love to get to, but I have to actively choose to put it at the bottom of my list and say, I will not do that for the sake of doing the things I can do. Do you have posteriorities and priorities? Are the things you say yes to other things you say no to? I'm sure that Jesus faced many of the same temptations we did. I'm sure people complained about him behind his back said, Jesus didn't care about me. He didn't spend enough time with me. And yet he knew, I'm focused on this. I say no to this. Let me read you a paragraph from Kevin DeYoung's book. It's one of the most refreshing, releasing books I, or chapters, paragraphs even, I have read in a long time. He says this, Jesus didn't do it all. Jesus didn't meet every need. He left people waiting in line to be healed. He left one town to preach in another. He hid away to pray. He got tired. He never interacted with the vast majority of people on the planet. 
He spent 30 years in training and only three years in ministry. He did not try to do it all, and yet he did everything God had asked him to do. I find that the most releasing paragraph I've read in years. It is brilliant. Jesus didn't try to do it all, and yet he did everything God had asked him to do. Do you know what you're saying yes to? And do you know what you should be saying no to? Now, of course, if we had time, there are plenty of practical exercises and things and tools and principles that we could lay out, but this is not a time management seminar, it's a sermon. So I I would recommend you check out some of those books I suggested earlier. You will find them very helpful. But I just want to look at the passage because I think that Jesus was a very strategic guy, but I don't get the impression that he decided whether he was going to stay in that village or not by getting up and plotting his day's tasks on a matrix or (laughs) ordering them one to five. Uh, Look at what the passage says. What is the antidote to busyness? Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus made a priority of prayer. He made a priority of investing in that relationship with God that he considered most important of all. And if Peter Kreeft is right, that busyness is often a way of trying to cram things into the hole in our heart, which is a hole that only God can fill. Then the antidote to busyness is allowing God to fill that hole in our hearts. Investing in the one relationship that matters the most. So how's your relationship with God? How's your relationship with God doing? Do you find that prayer is a blessing or something you struggle to get to? Is it a priority in your life to spend time with him? Are you filling your life with so much that you don't have time for him? And if that is the case, might it be worth rethinking your priorities a little, allowing him to fill that gaping hole that only he can fill? I don't find prayer easy. In fact, last time I was here, I don't expect you to remember what I preached on last time I preached here, but I remember. <laughs> um, what were my three points? <laughs> you don't know, do you? No, I, I preached on prayer. I preached on prayer. I remember standing in front of you guys at the TA center and saying, I find prayer hard. And I talked about that a lot, how hard I find. It doesn't come naturally to me. And I still say that however many years on. I find prayer hard. And I find it hard because often I come to prayer and I just think there are a million other things I could be doing right now. I sit down to pray and my mind is filled with all the tasks. And I think, how is talking to this invisible God going to help any of those tasks to get done? Wouldn't it be better for me to tick those things off and then I'll have time for God? But of course, then I actually go and I work through the to-do list and I find that it never ends and I don't have time with God. And so prayer is difficult, particularly in the times where I'm busiest. And yet that is the time I need it most. It really is. Martin Luther wrote in his journal this just challenging phrase. He says, work, work from morning until late at night. In fact, I have so much to do, I shall have to spend the first three hours in prayer. Man. Now, I'm not suggesting you have to spend three hours a day in prayer, nor to be clear that I spend three hours every day in prayer, uh, nor incidentally that it has to be in the morning, but that's another sermon, I suppose. But I, I think that prayer centers us, challenges us, refreshes us, fills a hole that busyness cannot fill. In the busiest seasons where prayer feels like a luxury we can't afford, it's then we need it more than ever. How's your relationship with God? Let me just unpack two reasons why I think prayer and relationship with God is the perfect antidote to busyness. And the first is this. In prayer, we catch a glimpse of what God is doing. Heading off to pray is just something that Jesus seemed to do all the time, but particularly at times where he had big decisions to make. So he needs to choose 12 disciples. What does he do? He doesn't 
list them and then kind of write them in order and think of pros and cons. No, he goes off and he's by himself on a mountaintop and he prays. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. I preached on this just before Easter, just struck by how at this moment where Jesus is wrestling with the biggest question anyone has ever wrestled with in the history of everything. And what does he do? He goes away alone and he prays. Jesus saw prayer as such a central thing for guiding, recentering, and settling him, giving him a focus. In John 5.19, Jesus says, the son can only do what he sees the father doing. Where do you think he saw what the father was doing? Through prayer, through time with the father. Jesus knew that if he was going to be effective and and, and achieve the things he had been sent to do, he needed to know what the Father was doing. In prayer, we catch a glimpse of what God is doing. Do you struggle to know what you should say yes to and what you should say no to? Ask God. Sometimes when we pray, we come away with a deeper, more sharper, clearer sense of what we are meant to be giving our time to. And sometimes it's, it's, it's a completely out of the blue revelation. You're like, whoa, I had no idea that was what I should be doing. Often it's not like that at all. I don't think that Jesus got up on this morning and went up onto the mountain and prayed and then suddenly went, what? I, I meant to take the gospel to all these villages? Like, why didn't you tell me that before? I think Jesus knew that. I think he always knew that. But I think in that morning, it was like he came and he brought his schedule before God and he said, ah, yes, you've reminded me what I'm sent here to do. And very often when we pray, I don't get new ideas. And that's okay because I couldn't handle a new idea every day. Sometimes I just need God to say, no, back there. (laughs) This thing we've talked about for years now, this is what I have made you to do. Prayer re-centers us. It refocuses us. It helps us to see what the Father is doing so that we know what we should do. In prayer, we catch a glimpse of what God is doing. But secondly, and finally, in prayer, we catch a glimpse of what God says about us. And I think this is the most beautiful thing. If pride is at the root of our busyness, if the root of our busyness is a concern with what others think of us, then the antidote to that is reminding us what God thinks about us. And that comes through investing in relationship with him, through reading his word, through worshipping, through doing all the things we've done this morning, through praying, celebrating things that he has done in our lives. When we read his word, when we worship, when we pray, it reminds us that our value is not in what we do. God does not love us more the more hours we rack up in service of him. He loves us because he is love. End of. And when we read his word and we pray and we worship, it reminds us of that. And it does our souls good. Prayer reminds us that our value is not in what we do. It reminds us that we were not made to do everything. I am so (laughs) pro-church because when I gather with others and I look around and I think how different we are, it reminds me I am not here to do everything alone and neither are you. And if you or I try to do everything alone, we will kill ourselves and be of no help to anyone. But when we each focus on the things that God has called us to do, we can achieve so much together. I, 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 had, I literally had to sit down with a guy at the end of my s- service this Sunday. I wasn't planning to say this, but uh, he, he's just been haranguing me for months and months and months and months and months about me doing something that he cares very passionately about. And to be honest, I don't really care a lot about. <laughs> but I'm so pro him doing it. 
It's brilliant that he cares about that because I'm not going to get to it. And I had to say to him, you're trying to get me to do this thing. This is not one of my priorities. This is a posteriority minus. It's like even lower than you know, anything else on my list. But I so want you to do that because if you don't do that, I'm not going to get to do it. And I think that's why we are here together so that between us we can achieve things. Community is so important. Time worshipping together is so important. And finally, when we pray, we are reminded the most beautiful but simple truth. In the Psalms, Psalm 46.10, I love this verse. It says, be still and know that I am God. And I think implicit in that is that we should be still and know that we are not. (laughs) Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that you are not. And you don't have to try. There's loads more that could be said, I'm sure. And uh, you may have a ton of questions, and they may be questions about busyness and practical things. I'm very happy to talk about those at the end. They may also be questions about faith in general. And it may well be that you're here as someone who is not a Christian. Maybe you're exploring Christianity for the first time. If so, I would love to talk to you at the end. And if you just feel like, actually, that I don't know if there is a hole that I'm trying to fill with other... I don't know if God can fill a hole in my heart. and I'm not sure about those things. Or maybe you feel like, actually... I get this busyness thing, I just don't get the God thing. I would love to talk to you about that. And at the end, we'll have an opportunity to come and find me and I'll spend as long talking and answering your questions as I have. And I would love to help you in any way I can. I know we're going to worship in just a bit, but if you're exploring faith, sometimes it's just a bit hard to know what to do with that. I want to give you an opportunity to come and talk to me if you would like. But we're going to worship and we're going to take communion. And uh, strangely enough, there aren't a lot of songs about diary management uh, out there. Um, maybe that's a niche in the market so <laughs> Robin can fill. Um, uh, I wouldn't advise it. Um, but as we take communion, as we worship, it's a way of saying, you are God and I'm not. And I'm okay with that. In fact, that's kind of the way I like it. <laughs> and, uh, and I'd love us to respond as a way of recognizing his strength and our weakness. But I wonder if I can just pray for us before I hand back over to Philip. And you may find it helpful uh, just to close your eyes as a way of saying, I focus on you, God. Uh, some people find it helpful just to hold out your hands as a way of saying, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm opening myself. I'm ready to receive from you. And what I'll do is I'll simply just give you just a few seconds to pause and be still, <laughs> which is not something we do very often. And then I'll lead us in prayer. Father, we choose right now to be still and know that you are God. And we humbly, joyfully say that we be still and we know that we are not. And that is good. We thank you that you are the good shepherd. Thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Thank you that you are the saviour of the world, not us. Thank you that you provide fountains of water that bubble up within us to life. You provide rest for weary souls. I want to ask right now, Holy Spirit, would you rest on tired hearts? As we heard during worship, some people just feeling like they have arrows in their hearts, as it were. I pray that you would soothe hearts and remove arrows.
I ask as we come to break bread and drink wine, which is just a beautiful symbol of your broken body and your shed blood, I pray that we would reflect on our frailty compared to your strength. And just worshipping would be a wonderful way of submitting to you, and I pray that you would do our hearts good. You would remind us that you love us, not because of what we do, but because you are love. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us, guide us, help us to know what you are calling us to do, what you're calling us to say no to. I pray that we would be deeply effective for you as individuals and as a church. And I pray for anyone here who does not yet know you. I ask that you would show them what it looks like to have that hole in their heart filled with you. I pray that you'd show them that you are more than enough. Be glorified as we worship, I pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Go for it.